And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! Gee! He's round the goalkeeper, he's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of a doubt giving him lip. Does it tame and tame and tame again? Break up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! What is it really like when a professional footballer turns up at your fiver side? When did Monday Night Football become the ultimate managerial job interview? Why are Brits abroad still such a footballing novelty? And what the hell is happening to the language of football? Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Access to The Athletic is just £1 a week. Get all our great content on the app and listen to podcasts like this ad-free. Go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Welcome, or hopefully even welcome back, listeners. We've got plenty to wade through for episode 42 of Clichés, from Mauricio Pochettino's LinkedIn page to the possible dystopian future of the language of football. With me to create an overload in the attacking transitions in the half space are, first of all, Charlie Eccleshare. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I hear Jose Mourinho was in classic Mourinho form in his press conference on on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Just... Express as a percentage just how Jose Mourinho he was. Yeah, about 80, 70, 80. Yeah, it was very Jose Mourinho. I mean, I do, um, when he's on form like that, he, he's just such an amazing orator. That is something that stands out. Like the way he, because you, you, when you listen back and transcribe it, which is a thing we have to do, um, yeah, he just, the way he builds, um, and it, it does feel, like, and I'm, I just can't believe that isn't um, premeditated because, you know, politicians are taught for hours days weeks learning those skills how to kind of make their point and he and uh i remember at school you know studying that in different subjects and i can just see some of the, the rhetorical devices he's using so it's uh, it is it's quite impressive the way he does it i have to say what was he banging on about it was about the kane uh lalana dive incident um and he was just making he clearly wanted to make the point that a he didn't think it was a dive and what about all the ones done by United. I mean, United getting a lot of penalties <laughs> has been something he's referred to quite a lot. You notice as well, going to all his press conferences, there are a lot of things he'll like to unnecessarily mention. Like Di- when Dyer was injured, he could just say Dyer was injured, but it was Dyer got injured on international duty. Every time he would ha- he would mention that it was on international duty. Not really relevant, but um, yeah, he would. And United penalties is a is a big hobby horse. He's just run out of original things to say, original avenues to go down. But, um, but yeah, we'll talk about... Um... We'll talk about his predecessor at Spurs shortly. Uh, alongside you in a virtual sense is TIFO Football's Seb Stafford-Bloor making his debut. Welcome, Seb. Thank you very much, Adam. Why is it taking you so, so very long to get me on the podcast? No, I get that a lot, actually. Um, uh, I won't tell about you Seb just how far down the list you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but crucially, just just how up-to-date is your footballing vocabulary? I, I suspect it's at the kind of bleeding edge, isn't it? No, that's more that's more Alex Stewart's territory at Tifo. I'm I'm kind of I reckon I'm in a, a nice little sweet spot where I feel able to, to to sneer at anybody whose view about the game kind of differs from mine or who uses slightly different language, whether it's not quite up to date enough or too up to date or too laboured. You know, I'm generally quite a facetious person. You've met me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, you, you'll fit in very well here. Welcome. Um, <laughs> well, let's get, let's just get straight into it, really. Um, this this first thing I want to talk about stems from a message from George Woodall, who says, listening to you mention Adam LaFondra in a recent podcast, he turned up at Power League Stockport Monday nightly to play for bottom-placed severe lack of talent. 
that's nice, Sevilla's in the nice, Spanish side, nice, nice. which is a nice variation on, on that theme. Uh, they had yet to win all season, um, but they unsurprisingly won 8-7, with Adam scoring when he pleased, but keeping the game competitive enough for everyone. The other team were called Norfolk in chance. Uh, they, were, they were one of the better teams in the league, so it was a real statement of intent from, from Sevilla, lack of talent. Um, so it, it, got, it got me thinking, um, Charlie, about about these instances when you kind of run into a ex-pro in, in a footballing context. And it, it's a lot more subtle than, than people might think. It, it isn't just about them scoring sensational goals left, right and centre. It's just about them just doing the basics, the subtleties, so much better than everybody else. I, I find it really interesting playing with former pros, especially those who are at an age where, as you say, they're probably not athletically or physically you know, going to be screeching past you. But a couple of things that always stand out. One is how vocal they are. Like, I've played with a few. On it, it's amazing. They do not stop organising and chatting. And it, and it's like the muscle memory kicks in. And it's like they know they're just playing in a charity or on a stag or whatever it is, but they can't help but organise. And it's it's genuinely really helpful. Like, I've played with, with like, um, Anderton and Winterburn and Merson, and they all do it. It's really funny just pulling you around. And, yeah, when you say about the basics, I remember... Um, playing with Winterbell once, and he, you know, I think he's in his 50s, but he, and and some of the guys we were playing against were, were genuinely really good, but they just couldn't get past him. He just, his anticipation and knowing where to position his body, it was really impressive to watch, actually. Um, and then, yeah, I remember, I mean, Anderton and Merson, obviously, both are tang players, and they could just basically score when they wanted. And I remember Merson... I've never seen the trajectory of the part. He would hit the ball so hard, so it couldn't be intercepted, but it would land sort of perfectly at your feet, at your foot. It was, it was really incredible the angles and trajectories they were able to get. Seb, we're uh, we're in danger of getting into territory here where we say good players are good at football, which is fairly obvious. But it, it's just, I mean, hearing stories about Nigel Winterburn just scoring for fun, um, <laughs> it's it's just really hard to get your head around someone being that good at football and being that much better than you, someone who is capable at football. You know, it actually, it can encourage a little bit of a doom cycle because um, one of the things I've realised is that professional footballers or ex-professional players, they kick mm. footballs in a very unique way. Right. So in, in, in my in my case, like once you've seen it up close, and I don't mean in, in a kind of, in a, you know, in a, in a Premier League game that you happen to be covering. I mean, if you come across it in real life, yeah. It kind of makes you think about the way you play football. And that's not a great path to tread. I mean, if you think about sort of in your mind, like, you know, when you've been taking corners or free kicks, you look a little bit like a kind of raggedy David Beckham in some way. You know, you've got that kind of stylish fluidity to you, to the way you strike a ball. In reality, you look like somebody that has... Okay, so you know, um, you know the film Goal? You know those sequences yeah. where he's 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 out in the rain practicing and and yeah. he's kicking the ball in in a way which looks kind of biologically impossible. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. It is absolutely absurd, and you just think how how if you were an editor did you allow that to go pop <laughs> sort of overhead <laughs> kicks? Yeah, and yeah. and also like it's 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 all the worst parts of Escape to Victory, but just mm-hmm. without the real players. Um, there are no bad parts, but, but carry well, on. Yeah, sorry, I, I I forgot where I was temporarily there. I forgot yeah. which which territory I'd wandered into. But so this is this is. Um, I remember playing uh, when I was about so twenty twenty one with a couple of guys that had um, washed into a uh, an amateur league in in Oxfordshire, and one of them I won't mention who it is because yeah I might say some negative things about him. Um, <laughs> but one of them um, had played for Oxford and. Mm. He was playing on the left-hand side and he used to play like crossfield passes and I'd be in the middle of the pitch and you'd hear the ball whistle as it went over your head. Like if you've ever stood by someone when they're when they're teeing off a golf, you know, like a really good player and the ball sort of whistles through the air. Mm. It was like that. It was it was amazing the way that the ball just sort of it just arrowed over your head and and um and it made me think I I I goodness knows what I look like when I when I kick a football. <laughs> like I maybe like I've got sort of um, three different feet on the same leg or something. I know. I never thought about the idea that it might kind of make you more disillusioned about your own football. That's that's um, yeah. That's a kind of slightly depressing way of looking at it. I mean, I've never. I don't think I've ever played with a with a proper professional, or even an ex pro. The best I can offer is for my Sunday league team um, a few years ago. We had someone who'd who'd been at the ninth level of English football, the Midlands Alliance. So barely even semi pro, and everything he did, all the basics were just eight out of ten every single time and it was just it was just really he wasn't spectacularly good he just did everything really well and and another thing I noticed about people who've played football at an incredibly high level is just they they are 
constantly tuned to any physical threat that might come to them. So Charlie, it's just elbows out all the time at five side, and he just you just suddenly think, oh my god, this is just a different level of of football experience that they they take for granted. The thing the thing is as well, like with the with those guys. I mean, I remember playing with a guy who probably highest he was going to get to was like fifth fifth sort of tier maybe. And in power league, I just remember off either foot just being able to bury it into the corners. That as said was that sort of whistling sweet technique. And and when you yeah. play, I remember playing it as well. You. They are so you have the ball and they are so quick onto you. Your base, you just feel petrified. You're going to give it away every time. Um, <laughs> but one thing is, well, like with the like how bad you you realize how bad you are. If you've ever been unfortunate enough to have any of your play filmed, how slow it is. Like you, there's enough. You watch a shot and there's enough time. It's like when you jump off like a, a, a high, I don't know, like a diving board or a rock. Or something you've got enough time in the air to be like. <laughs> Shit, this is quite scary. So saying there's enough time, the ball's in the air, and you're like, is that going to go in? I wonder if that's going to go in. Yeah. And you realise how different that is to football, where, you know, a 25-yard shot, you're used to it just, like, in, like, a split second later. You are absolutely right. I mean, um, the idea of having one of your games filmed seems so exotic as a concept, but I can promise you, if anyone listening is thinking about doing that, do not. You, you will be so depressed by looking at the final product about how slow and how rubbish and how just... How, just Genuinely floppy you are as a footballer, so uh, not recommended. Um, Seb, we have we have some um, listener contributions on, on this subject. Um, long-time listener Michael Cox writes in and says, he played against Dennis Irwin two years ago, tried to show him onto his weaker foot, spent a couple of seconds remembering whether he was left or right-footed, <laughs> and by the time I decided, he'd gone past me. Um, which, which sounds like a very coxy way of playing football to me. But, yeah, I, but also, like I, I feel like someone like Michael Cox should have um, should have remembered the... Uh, there's a very famous Dennis Irwin moment when, in that 3-2 game, Man United won in Turin where Irwin cuts onto his right foot and then goes past him to his left and uh, nearly uh, I forget who the I think it was Angelo Peruzzi in the Juventus goal um, and nearly uh, puts United ahead on the night so it could have been instead of Andy Cole and Dwight York that could have been about Dennis Owen. In summary, you should have put him into the advertising boards, I think, Coxie. <laughs> Sam says, I've played football against former cricket international Paul Collingwood. He was crap. Uh, not really much more to say about that. <laughs> Ali Tweedale, a friend of everybody, says, tried to show off by dribbling out of defence in five side while playing alongside Paul Merson. Got tackled, opposition scored, Merson screamed at me, that's what happens if you fuck about. He just wanted to win so much. I was playing uh, that game, it so- was amazing. It was, it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Um, I, don't, I mean, we, we've, we've spoken already about the, the physical side of it and the, and the technical side of it, but... Um, Seb, I mean, Merson's attitude there speaks to just a mindset, a footballing mindset that you just can't switch off after you've retired. So you're demanding a, a level of standard, a playing standard from mere mortals that they just can't deliver. Um, that must that must really eat at a footballer when they're sort of, you know, slumming it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to steal somebody else's anecdote now um, because this seems to be a kind of fairly common trope in, um, you know, in, in celebrity games and uh, games against ex-players is that there's always someone that tries to do something outrageous against an ex-professional goalkeeper. There's always someone like gets the ball at 35 yards out and tries mm. to chip. I remember, I think, um, I think we were a uh, <laughs> friend, friend of all of ours, uh, Dan Kilpatrick, I remember him trying to chip David James from 35 yards <laughs> Wembley <or so laughs> and being shouted at by Stan Collymore. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that I've heard that anecdote third hand, so it's not even I wasn't even there. So I feel like I've I've cheated him out of um a good story one day. But that th- that sounds fairly common. Like it's uh some people find it seem to, to treat it as an opportunity. And I think that's probably what winds up the ex players is that they're kind of vulnerable to become like a, a villain character in somebody else's sort of story about themselves, like a, you know, dinner party fodder when they're talking about, oh, you know, I, you know, did a kind of roulette around, you know, Roy Keane or something. It's quite a vulnerable position to be in because if you're Paul Merson, if you're, if you're anybody that kind of regularly appears in this, like you're exposed to people that um, probably younger than you, like probably in better shape than you. Um, and are kind of absolutely determined to have their little moment. Like if you're like, like you said, Adam, like a lot of us still believe we're quite good players. We're not. We're all a bit shit. But um, it's it's kind of the chance to sort of have your little bit of, of, of validation, isn't it? Interesting you say that because um, there is a kind of there's a flip side to this. I mean, there's there's the kind of 
emulation you have of of playing against professional football and just seeing how much you could possibly impress them. But there is a flip side to this. Um, Jamie Carragher uh, spoke to the Athletic Simon Hughes quite a few months ago for for a piece about grassroots football up in Liverpool, and he said, um, "Up until three or four months ago, I played five aside near Stuart Road on a Friday night, but I found myself getting wound up with other people, giving the ball away stupidly or making reckless decisions. I started making silly tackles myself, leaving one in on someone. My head would go if we were getting beat, and I'd start having it up my teammates." If we had someone shit in goal and he let one in, it would wind me up. I was like, what am I doing? Charlie sounds like he was in some serious turmoil here, having to play football with idiots. Yeah, but that's be really hard. That is exactly the experience I had, as I was saying, from playing with those guys. Like they you could tell it was just so ingrained. It's so they clearly they knew they shouldn't be. And that was even in like a charity game or something, let alone if they were playing in an actual league. And on that theme of like, you know, trying to get one over, one of my mates spent the whole that whole game with Winterburn trying to nutmeg him. Like every time he got, <laughs> clearly he just wanted to be able to say, I've nutmeg Nigel Winterburn. It wouldn't he, I mean it would be quite a good anecdote. Sort of seven, eight out of ten. Yeah. Um and Winterburn mm. got wise to it. And I think at the end was he said, I like, stopped trying to nutmeg <laughs> it's, it's it's not gonna happen. <laughs> Yeah, it just completely changes how you would tr- how you would try and play football. Yeah, it's just actually not helpful to have Nigel Winterburn around in pretty much any, every context. Moving on to our next section. This fascinated me, even though I only had half an eye on it on, on Monday night, Seb, which was uh, Mauricio Pochettino on Monday night football. And it was a classic example, a really good case study of of the kind of shop windowing of, of out-of-work managers, but in, a, in the most deluxe kind of context imaginable. Because at the entry level, kind of the kind of budget end, you've got goals on Sunday, which is... You know, Alan Pardew, I feel like, is on goals on Sunday probably like once a month. He's like he's like Peter Andre on Loose Women. It's like, you're on again? What what have you got to sell this time? Like, what could you possibly have to 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 uh, sell to us this week? But um Charlie Eccleshare on football it, cliches. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. What is it, yeah, what is it you're trying to do here? <laughs> yeah. Um but it, but it was the same the same concept. It, it, the general theme was, aren't you itching to get back into get into the game? Like, where where next, Mauricio? You know, it reminds me of um, it reminds me of the two different types of dark competition. Like, there's one I, I forget which which way around they are, but there's one which is played in like big arenas, and there's one which, for all intents and purposes, seems to just happen in shopping centres. Oh, as B- far BDO. as BDO, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not sure the the sort of the material differences between them, other than the physical environments. And it feels like. You're either Pochettino under the cool lights with the big iPad, with all the kind of the deference of the ex-players saying, oh, you know, explain this 10 seconds of action to me, Maurizio. Or you're on hangover TV, having your knee squeezed, um, and you're, you're being asked to tell you're, you're being asked to tell a few Why stories. Why do they squeeze knees so much on Girls on Sunday? I've it's, never understood. It, it, it's part of the reflex. It's a it's right. a big it's a big hearty laugh and a squeeze of the yeah. knee and uh, yeah. and if you if you notice when they when they start saying things like oh you know I'm I'm looking to uh, to get back in, I mean it's almost a kind of like a a tragic comic moment because like you, I I just can't imagine you're right. Alan Pardew is on Girls on Sunday probably twice a month. Um, or was when it was still going and there's Pulis is there I, I'm convinced there's only ever been probably about eight or nine guests in the history of the show in terms of the variation and you just yep. you, you have this image of like you know that mem of um, of uh, Pablo Escobar from Narcos when he's just standing in the swimming pool and that's that's what I imagine that's that's kind of what I default pard you into when he's not in work he's just standing there sadly and it's 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 kind of I don't know there's a very strict hierarchy but it's, it's odd, isn't it? Like the idea of kind of putting yourself in the shot window. We all have our fun with it. And you just think, yeah, because you know what? If Mercy Pochettino hadn't appeared on Monday Night Football, I might not connect him to top jobs around the world. I need to see him again. It's just like it's a nonsense which we all, which we all perpetuate. This is a very interesting point because, uh, Charlie, I mean, on, from a broadcasting perspective, it's good to have Mauricio Pochettino. You, you would take that opportunity any day of the week. And, you know, he's a Bielsa protégé, so that fixture alone is a very good reason to have him on. And, and to get a top-level manager who is still active analysing games is, is all very good. So that he was a perfect candidate to have on the show. But it does feel now like a formal part of the process of getting a job these days, especially at the very, very top level. Um, and it feels like, it almost feels like someone announcing that they're running for office. Like they have to be on Monday Night Football to say, that 
I'm available. I'm getting back into it. I'm ready. I've finished my garden. I've done traveling. I've been to the Great Wall of China. And now, do you know what? I fancy getting into um, laminated set piece <laughs> folders again. I've got a nice new haircut. Um, it, it, was, <laughs> it was a reminder, though. I mean, Pochettino, speaking about Mourinho as well and having, you know, transcribing that and picking up the ticks, you, you, I, it reminded me of Pochettino of every question, pretty much. These, a difficult question, he will say, Yes, but I think it's literally the the start to every single question. Hey, that's an excellent Pochettino. Yeah, it's, that's it, fantastic. It's, that's it's, good. it's every time, and and he'll then he's a, he's brilliant to listen to, but he'll kind of just go off on all these kind of crazy tangents. And actually, as much as it was him putting himself in the shot window, you, you also you're aware when you have someone like that, he's not going to say anything remotely, you know, that could compromise him in any ways. Um, so it was quite. Uh, I, I I loved hearing him. It was just so nice to see him. But he's not. I think people were hoping he was going to come on and be like, you know, come and get me to uh, to Man United yeah. was probably far fetched. But that's where the questions kept going. I mean, again, I completely sympathise with why why they would push this avenue set. But um, I think after about the third or fourth time, about where they sort of openly wondered what he was what he was going to be doing next and when that would happen. Um, I'm surprised Carragher didn't bring up his LinkedIn page on one of his little um, screens and start sort of pointing out bits that he needed to improve. Well, I remember watching it, Adam, and thinking, this is going... I, I can see where this is going to go because in that situation, if you're him and you you start to talk about, yes, well, that would be quite nice and you know, Manchester United got a group, group of players and an unlimited amount of money, that would be quite a handy little employment situation to find myself in. Then you've got kind of... Um, other people on the sort of the uh, the uh, in in Sky Studios talking about well, he's being very disrespectful to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer there, and, and that, that standing army of like ex Man United players who who seem um, loyal to a fault, um, and it's just got to be in a one in one way you can understand him being like that. In another, you have to believe that when you sign up to that, you know what's coming. So it's kind of mm. it, it's it's very it's oh, very strange situation to put yourself into because he doesn't. He doesn't really need to, need to advertise himself. It's not like no, I don't know right. if 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 Brian Little came on and be like, oh, I'm, I, actually his Villa side were, were quite good for you know about a season and a half, and he suddenly re-enters the the news cycle. It's like you're putting yourself in a situation where kind of it's kind of a no-win scenario. I don't know. I just think I just think because he's such a treasured guest, he's, it's rare for them to get someone of that caliber. In, in the studio, I just think she, on on that basis of alone, he's probably his stock rises just on on that basis alone. So it's kind of self perpetuating. He's already he's already a, a good get, and then he becomes an even better one just on the basis of him being there. It's um when you're someone who's famous or beloved, the bar for what they have to say for you to like them is very low. You know, they just have to be like quite a nice person. You're like. What a lovely fella! He's he's the nicest it's, it's, guy yeah, you'll actually, ever meet. He, he's the, he's just it's so not down a to it. So well, speaks yeah, so well. exactly. Just, <laughs> just just the most normal. Honestly, the most normal guy, and it's like he's just kind of been polite for a few questions. There was an inevitable moment where uh, Brendan Rogers was was brought in on the um, on the post match interview, Seb, and then, and of course they um, there is that awkward moment where the guy behind the screen on the microphone addresses the guy in the studio, but kind of does it through the presenter, oh, yeah. and it's. I just don't think they've nailed it. It's like just just talk to each other. It's fine. And then of course, and then you have the just the small talk as we as we established last week, which is just painful. It reminds me of Gary Neville's first ever Monday Night Football when I I, th- I think he was would have been maybe um, Mancini's Man City possibly against I Swansea. I think um, that's it. And um and he he kind of they 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 segued over to him and it was kind of he got on the uh, got on the microphone and was like oh it's it's me Gary. And it was just excruciating because it kind of in our in our mind football is just like a a big group of friends and everyone knows each other and you know you you expect them to kind of launch into some sort of racy conversation about what happened the last time they were all down the pub together or something and it's just like when football tries to to manufacture those situations I, I feel like I cringe out my spleen it's just it's just terrible in a sort of similar context um after the final whistle has gone and the, and the cameraman comes onto the pitch at the end of a Premier League game and you get sort of random um players from each side sort of embracing and looking like they really know each other my my first thought is how do you know each other like <laughs> Where, why, why, and where, and when do you mix? And and it should be obvious. I guess it's a, it's a fairly small fraternity, I suppose. But um, that's all I can ever think of when you see I don't know Delhi Alley and uh, why can't I think of all those names? Um, <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, this makes me think of it's um, when I think of Gareth Bale winning the Champions League, I think of Des Kelly, which is terrible. Like it's it's such a disservice to um, 
to, to Gareth Bale's career. But I, I think of him being all matey with him after his interview. And I, I don't know Des Kelly. I'm sure he's the nicest person in the whole of the media. Um, but it's it's a weird little dynamic. It's a kind of long lost friends. And it's kind of, and as part of you, it thinks, well, that kind of makes sense because, and you think, yeah, it's really just because they both have a common language. There really isn't very much more to it than that. It's like a... Yeah, they spend a lot of time together, like more than we probably see. So we should, perhaps we shouldn't underestimate this, this matiness. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We've been speaking about out-of-work managers, but let's speak about manager who's very much got a job, Charlie, and that's Mick McCarthy, <laughs> who's gone to Applewell. Fair play. Yeah, I mean, it feels... I don't know what would have, what I would have thought would be his next career move i mean maybe another kind of dogged championship side but yeah i mean all, all the best to him I'm, I'm sure that will make for a very interesting interview at some point i was interested <laughs> in your reaction there because the the vibe i got from your reaction there was it's a bit of a novelty it's a bit of a novelty that that mick mccarthy has chosen to go to to cyprus to continue his managerial career so seb my first question to you is is that why is it such a novelty when sort of British stroke Irish managers or, and players as well go off on, on this slight tangent? I, I mean, even calling it a tangent feels slightly disrespectful to any of those countries that be, they should be going to. It's because when it happens, we um, we substitute these guys into um, all the cliches about British people abroad. Mm. So like you think about <laughs> typically how hard it is for British people to assimilate. So in this instance, <laughs> it's Mick McCarthy arriving at the airport probably losing his luggage having an argument with someone <laughs> at the hire car desk trying mm. to find the irish pub getting sunburnt obviously because that's just what happens um yeah. doing all of he, he becomes a sort of proxy for all our worst behaviors abroad um mm. and the thing is is there's actually um there's a sort of mini industry of, of british managers who've done very well who've kind of made niche reputations themselves people like stephen constantine mm. for instance around yeah, yeah, yeah around the world but when these guys go off it always when when people uh, sort of um find themselves out of work having been employed in high profile um british jobs premier league jobs uh, championship um, positions it's always the unlikely ones it's not never the urbane types it's always it's always david Moyes going to san sebastian to, re- to manage sociedad and getting yeah. sunburned i mean that that's kind of what, <laughs> you know, or, or or chris coleman with you know slightly urbane chat maybe but not an obvious candidate to, to be in La Liga. It's never the people that you kind of in your mind you associate with being progressive. And so they invite all of these uh, assumptions about you know, being a British person abroad, you know, taking some naff like inflatable to the local swimming pool. You know, it's, it's stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> have you got any more? Have you got any more Brits abroad cliches you want to get off your chest now? Yeah? Uh, to be honest um, with you, like if I go any further, we'll have to start doing pretty heavy edit of this podcast. So yeah, like, I'll, I'll, st- I'll just stop there. I'll stop there. But on your on your point about adaptability, Charlie, there's probably there's probably a sort of a solid footballing reason why uh, why why that might be the perception is because um, English football is a very comfortable place to be. There's no reason to leave English football. The Premier League is, as we are constantly reminded, the place to be. It has a gravitational pull, so it's hard to leave. And then when you do leave, to say uh, like McLaren going to twenty, then. It's hard to stay away. You're going to be coming back, you know, at the earliest possible opportunity. So it's, it's it's there's a kind of inertia there, quite naturally. Yeah, I mean, I've always it's always intrigued me as to what uh, for, for for a manager. I mean, like Brendan Rodgers, say who, who I think's excellent, and I know you know a lot, a lot of people um, do now think that uh, you know some have have had their issues with him. But anyway, for him to get like a big four job, I mean, I wonder if he would need to or big six or whatever we're calling it 
whether he would need to go abroad and you know get Champions League experience like would that do it would 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 that be you know what is doing what he's done with Leicester what would be going and having a reasonable Champions League experience with a team in another league I, I just don't know I don't I don't know how much of a premium we put on the Premier League compared to managing another well, league well that's the flip side actually um this is a good point actually because Seb uh, as much as I say that Premier League has this kind of gravitational pull and that we're, we're so obsessed with it and and that's part of the reason for our insular footballing nature generally when a manager like McLaren goes to the Eredivisie or Moyes goes to Sociedad, um, almost regardless of how well they perform, there is that kudos of having done it. If you are an English person and a manager or player and you've gone abroad and, you, and you've sampled that culture, it kind of imbues you with a certain... Makes you, I don't know. It makes you a little bit more cosmopolitan, doesn't it? I think... Um, but, but rightly so. Look, I, I, I'm speaking to someone that's moving countries. I, I'm you know, leaving England to go and live in Germany. And it's difficult. Like, there are adjustments. If you want to do it properly, there are adjustments you have to make. There are languages. There are nuances. You know, like that scene in... in um, like in Glorious Bastards when the guy doesn't know the different Michael Fassbender doesn't know to hold up four fingers instead of three or the other way around or something you know that's a good example there's loads of little subtleties all over the world and if you think about if you think about coaching as as needing to you know the basis of coaching is the need to communicate and if the one thing that you rely on in your coaching career is then taken away from you and you start from zero, if you're willing to go and accept that challenge, I have, I mean, we, we have our fun with these guys, but you have to admire it. I mean, it's just a shame, I think, that um, when someone like Steve McLaren does it, we remember press conferences rather than Eredivisie titles. And, and it's, it's, it's sad. I, I think it goes, does go back to the type of person that goes, and it's very much last resort. So people tend to, people tend to migrate away from the Premier League or the Championship when there aren't any other options when something's happened, there's been a, a, an incident or a catastrophe, and at which point their reputation is calcified and there's no way back. And so from that moment, everything is hilarious because that's that's kind of how the modern world is. Everyone wants to point and laugh. And I, it's it's difficult. And I also understand why it becomes a little bit... Um, uh, well, it, it, why it does become a last resort because you you are in a little bit of a no win situation. I see, I see what you mean, but it just feels like their CV is kind of instantly boosted. But I mean that by by definition is just a result of our insular nature, the fact that we're very you know impressed by that straight away. But um, but uh, Charlie, well, can I can I throw a, a, a one of your own favourite um, quotations sure. back at you? So mm. let's go back to late 90s and Alex Ferguson dismissing Arsene Wenger as having come from Japan. <laughs> Japan. Like, Japan. It's, it's interesting how this is kind of, how this has turned around, how this has kind of been inverted as a, as a habit mm. because now that's quite, I feel like if someone came to manage uh, in the Premier League from the J-League now, mm. we'd have lots of videos and lots of explainers and lots of people uh, praising this innovative new pressing system that's on its way from Japan and has only ever yeah. been seen in Asia. And it, So in less than really a quarter of a century, culture has kind of inverted, which is which is fascinating. We now we we treasure the, the sort of the, um, the the cosmopolitan people. We don't have that same distrust. And that's true in English managers, I think. That, I think. That's I'm true. Sure. That's true to an extent. But I do still think it's interesting that like when someone like Guardiola even came over, there was this suspicion and there was a real attempt to try and catch him out. You know, remember the, his early press conferences yeah. and there was that thing where he said he didn't practice tackling and all of this. Like, I think we, we th- there's a divide because there are some on some level we do as you say is that we we really want to be smart and embrace these different things but then on the other we don't want them thinking it's easy and that they can come over and yeah. you know and and the, obviously the whole remember the whole Marco Silva thing suspicion that when when he came over i was just thinking there as well like what's it almost feels like with english managers there's a there's quite a stark division between we either think of them as like oh fair play that's a pretty urbane thing to do so I think you'd put managing Twente in that category but then we mm. kind of look at leagues and think oh that's a bit of a novelty isn't that funny you know I, yeah. so you think like you know yeah. I remember John Gregory managing in Israel would have been about 2010 and, and this was kind of quite a nascent period for like sharing things on social media and it was there was like a video sent mm. around of him and it was like haha isn't this funny He's, so it's like but it's like what's the cutoff there this is, is Cyprus the you know Cyprus is probably just in that novelty in the kind of public consciousness i don't know where where that well, yeah, i mean it's, it's a league we're not going to be watching yeah. by and large and so all we see is is the the classic iconography of, of that kind of unveiling graphic that always gets tweeted mm-hmm. out and 
for some reason, <laughs> that the more far-flung the league, the more exotic the graphic they produce. Uh, Mick McCarthy looks looks absolutely incredible in his unveiling graphic at Apple. Um, but what I do fear um, for McCarthy is this isn't going to be a long-term deal. Uh, Apple have had 12 managers in five years, Seb. Um, I'm just going to read you out a few of these names. Okay. Incredible list of managers they've had since 2015. Torsten Fink of Bayern Munich fame. Yeah. Uh, Domingos Pacienza. Tamuri Ketsbaya. Wow. Former okay. Leeds manager Thomas Christiansen. Some Dutchman called Mario Bain. Uh, former Blackburn winger George Donis. Another Portuguese guy, Bruno Baltazar. Former Spurs legend, Paolo Tramazzani. Mm. Legend. Thomas Dole. They had an interim guy who was actually Cypriot, which was a nice touch. Um, Kari <laughs> Ingebrigtsen, once of Manchester City, I'm told. Uh, Greek guy called Marinos Uzanidis. And then finally, here comes Mick McCarthy. Um, this doesn't bode well for him. No, but then it seems like a kind of, it seems like a, a little bit of an Andre Villas-Boas move, doesn't it? In a, on, a, on, a, on a smaller scale, but you, yep. you know, maybe Mick McCarthy's at the stage of his managerial career where it's less about the work he does and more stuff to see. Different parts of the world, different cultures. You're, you're in that kind of exploratory, you know, devil may care phase where you just go and do what you want. I always feel like yeah. if I was to... Um, acquire a certain reputation like a, a sort of a, a stock in coaching I think I would go the Villas Boas route you'd want to go to different places and sort of well I'll you know do a rally here and climb a mountain there and <laughs> yeah. you know do some underwater cave diving over in this place and you know do a bit of management along the way and just to, just to pay the bills so you know, it it sounds like it sounds like Mick McCarthy's going into it with his eyes open I think two things I, from going to Cyprus quite recently that stuff me one is that they drive on the same side of the road as as in England so that's definitely a plus oh, for handy. McCarthy one thing I would warn him is if he uses Google Maps, it can kind of throw them all crazy. So when the narrator is reading out, it just reads out the characters because it's different characters. So rather than saying like, turn left onto this road, it will say turn left onto Gamma Delta Zeta. And the first time that happens, That's yeah, it can really throw you. So Mick, if you're listening, just do be careful with that. Don't let that throw you. You will still get from A to B. If he's not telling that very <laughs> precise story on goals on Sunday within the next 18 months... That's it. I am done. I, I, I will no longer try and predict anything. I would just again. love his indignation when that's being read out. Just this is. <laughs> but he'd be really kind of just he'd just sigh his way through it. Just be really philosophical yeah, yeah. about it. Say, well, that's that's just how it's done over there. I mean, you know, it's um, that's just how it how it was. So, Seb, you mentioned you, you so you're in the process of moving to Germany. Yeah, um, yeah. You dropped so, that in. Well, is this the Sancho effect? Is this the Sancho effect? Or, you know, are you just yeah, you're that <coughs> well, it's, it's a few things. Um, I wasn't. I didn't prepare this information when I came on the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I think I've misunderstood my role in this. Um, no, uh, my wife is from Hamburg. Um, it was time for change and time to live in more than a very small flat. Yeah, just a little bit easier to do these things financially. Um, also, and uh, yeah, just I, I also like the idea of staying in Europe. Good. Bit of, to just Good. bring a little bit of political controversy to uh, yeah. to, to, to the football cliches. Pod. Presumably, then you you, you must sympathise then with this kind of gentle flood of of English youngsters going to ply ply their trade in the Bundesliga, and and it it strikes me as a, it's a little bit like the same impulse you get in November when a manager is the first manager is sacked, and then loads of clubs sack their manager straight after, and you think, well, the thought process there must have been, oh, they did it, so maybe I'll do it as well, and it, and it seems really juvenile, and I sort of wonder if that might be the same impulse here, where Sancho's gone and done well in with, with Dortmund. But there are so many variables that could be possibly at play here. And yet loads of players have gone and done the same thing in the hope that they will do, you know, similarly well. Yeah. And, and you hear some you hear some quite bad stories as well. I um, obviously won't mention the player's name, but he it was a couple of years ago and he was a he went off to the Eredivisie on loan. And he was quite a young guy at the time. And his answer to that was to take, I think, about 15 of his closest friends with him to whichever Dutch city he played in. And he kind of created this weird insular, um, from what we're told, like mini Neymar role. You know, they're like the sort of the the little kind of internal principality that he has in in Paris, bar accounts. I just feel like if you go there, you if you if you go abroad, and if you go abroad as a young person, 
then maybe pay attention to the things that Jaden Sancho did when he went rather than kind of, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to take all of my comfort blankets at the same time and, <laughs> and I'm going to invite as much trouble as I possibly can and, uh, you know, tip over a, a local monument and trash a few bars and th- these kind of things. You, you kind of have to, you have to go, but you have to go as a sort of, as a guest in somebody else's country, if that makes sense. Mm. And um, I think, that, to be fair to, to to the younger players now, I think that's something they get very right. You you hear if you hear them interviewed, if you hear if you if you hear players interviewed now versus what you did twenty years ago, when I don't know a somebody went over to Italy, started eating pasta three times a day, and complained about <laughs> how much weight they were putting on. You feel like the, the the British footballer has grown up and matured a little bit in that time, so they mm. do understand kind of the the perils and the landmines that lie ahead of them. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, there's a bit of a copycat thing here, but with good reason, and I like it. It's uh, that they're willing to go and do it and embrace the challenges. It's, it feels healthy. Jolly, if, if, if Sancho et al are... Um kind of sort of exploding this this novelty of of English or you know British players playing abroad and and part of it part of that novelty I, I sensed was that the continentals just didn't rate us they, they didn't rate our footballers in on a technical level and that's why they didn't they didn't come for our players that that may have been part of the reason why it was such a rarity um but there was there is one little curious corner of the of, of football where we do seem to be in demand I offer you big moves from Arsenal to Real Madrid Bournemouth to Atletico and Aston Villa to PSG. But can you tell me who they were? Arsenal to Real Madrid, did you say? Mm. Uh, so is, is this a young... Is this an English player? Or just any... It's Paul Burgess. Dan Gonzalez. Jonathan Calderwood. I can tell you, all three are um, elite-level groundsmen. Um, groundsmen? I thought they were lured doctors. To... Yes, yes, very good. No, they've all been lured to the continent because they're just really good at keeping grass yeah. nice. Arsenal, so, uh, Paul Burge, he used to win groundsman of the year every year. Yeah, I mean, Arsenal just won mm. it for like 20 years in a row. Um, I mean, we, we should probably do an episode on pitches because I just can't remember the last time I saw a Premier League pitch that wasn't mm. nice. And the only thing I can think of is the Sandy Chelsea one against Charlton in 2005. Ooh, controversial um, that, yeah. But, but yeah, uh, we'll leave, we'll leave um, pitch cliches till we're really scraping the barrel. <laughs> Moving on, however, uh, on to more pressing matches. Quite literally. I saw a tweet this week that said, um, first line of the press, well, that's just what Ian Rush and Kenny Dalglish were doing nearly 40 years ago, defending from the front. Um, Seb, this caused something of a minor storm of footballing discourse. Um, these things seem to break out about sort of three times a yeah. year. Yeah. Where do you where do you sit on this? I mean, you don't have to have a position. I, I class myself as kind of aggressively neutral here. But is there a debate? Is there really a, a clash at all? Well, I think there is, but in the same way that there are always clashes between people of different generations, because it's not really about football, is it? It's about a generation that's younger than you, seizing your ideas, rebranding them and repackaging them as as your own. Like I, I have, I mean, I don't really have a hard and fast rule about this. I I think there, there are, there is, there's some terminology that I quite like. So for instance, I, you know, the idea of a, a fantasisti, the kind of the, the, the Italian play. I love that. that. That's so exotic and cool. And it, it describes how I feel about players of that type. On the other hand, like if if the three of us were going out to Power League now and Charlie said, oh, I'm I'm, I'm going to play, you know, I'm going to play in defence. Adam, you said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play in attack. And I said, oh, no, lads, I'm going to play as the numero ocho. <laughs> <laughs> you would all like that's kind of where I draw the line if that makes sense the sort of okay. if something like if, if, Trick if, artistic, if it's sort of a, yeah <laughs> in ganche <laughs> I mean it's it's these are all phrases that, that describe something um, pertinent and relevant in the game and, and whether you mm. whether you like them or not is really up to you what I'd say is it's quite a good barometer for, for their likability is are they useful or are they kind of self-indulgent, look at me, um, emperor's new clothes stuff? Because I, I think that's yeah. where the line exists. And you do hear some terrible ones. When people, when people just sort of come out with sort of literal translations of positions. So instead of a midfielder, you, you, they, 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 in English, by the way, talking about medio centro. Like, don't do that. Don't, don't. That's 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 fairly self-explanatory. I feel like we wouldn't need that in our footballing language. To pick up on the point you made about how some of these concepts are simply things that have been repackaged from the past, um, I feel I feel like um, we can only turn to Peter Reid here to sum up this corner of the argument. We used to have the high press. We shut down up the front, which we used to call it, and then we dropped off to shut down low press. 
the same same thing, but different jargon. Well, re- recycle the ball. By the way, you win a tackle. Transition, a counter-attack. That's what we used to do. It's the same thing. It's all bollocks. Charlie, I genuinely don't have a desire to, to lay into um, either Peter Reid or what he just said there, but it but it does open up a little avenue of of debate, which is that he calls it jargon, in it, and he's, he's essentially saying that these are just new new words for for existing principles. And in some cases they are, in some cases it's, it's it's arguable. But what I what I really want to kind of thrash out with you two today is how much of this jargon is is creeping into our game genuinely, and how much do we really care about it creeping in? Because I think I feel like most of it's perfectly acceptable, isn't it? Yeah, I don't I don't have a major issue with it. I can see why. Um... There is a sense. It's a. It's almost a possessive thing, isn't it? It's kind of reclaiming um, what what some players feel, you know, has always been there, and we're trying to be clever and say these are new ideas. And I, I, I don't really know who's doing that. I mean, I don't think you know. It's not normally managers who are saying that these are new things they're doing. Um, and yeah, I don't. I don't feel like um, it's particularly problematic. I mean, I always found the XG backlash really strange I mean I, I I get it but as if you know it's kind of mutually exclusive that either you you know that you're all about data or you're not about it at all I think for most of us we're somewhere in between and you know xg is just a fairly useful metric um but it's not kind of the, the end of football as we know it and that's sort of how I feel about most of these terms and yeah I, I to me personally I, I don't feel that it is particularly jargon heavy and I think there's still but but I but I do like you know I, I love um things like Monday Night Football where it's just a bit more advanced and sophisticated I think that's kind of um that's all I really look for yeah I mean if, if I mean it's just going to be a natural thing I don't think I don't think um uh anyone's kind of ramming these phrases down our throats Seb um if if Sky as a as a fairly main well a completely mainstream broadcaster uh, decides to start using some of these phrases and and indeed XG, which has become fairly ingrained. It's like a match of the day you use it. I think that we're all um, pretty comfortable with the concept. And anyone who says they don't understand it, I think might be lying just to further their cause. But uh, this wouldn't be a responsible episode of this podcast if we didn't dig into some of these examples. Um, I mean, take half space, for example, which is quite an elegant phrase. Um, I, I roughly translate it to mean what I grew up... A, understanding was the channel um but half space i mean some people might interpret it as overly technical but i think it's quite nice i think it's very descriptive in the same way that back in the day if you were before television if you were listening to a game on the radio you would have as part of that broadcast your little map of the pitch with its grids and it's it's kind of a1 c4 um you know half space isn't you know quite that sort of mathematical but it's for precision i you know some of the work we do at tifo a lot of um, a lot of Alex Stewart's tactical explainers reference it, not because he's being, um, not because he's trying to over intellectualize or self angrize but but because he um, he wants to be precise about what he's describing. And I so I think it has a place. I just I think what it goes back to actually, Adam, is how do you want to digest the game? If you want that kind of, if you want more sort of clinical coaching definitions, that's there for you. If you just want to enjoy it, that's there for you too. And I, I don't think it is actually that intrusive. I think also, if you go back in time, um, and I always think of um, Hotcraft's The Football Man, because in that, which it was published in the 60s, he's talking about the game, you know, in modern parlance, having gone, basically. And, you know, it's sort of him, him being fearful of kind of modern trends and celebrity players and that kind of thing. And so you think if you go back a previous generation, if you go back far enough, you'd have someone saying something like, Oh, a defensive midfielder. Well, that's a bit indulgent. You can't just have a midfielder anymore. And I think this is kind of the trap we fall into. It's just like, uh, you know, as you get older, you kick back against more stuff. Like I walk down the street and I, I, <laughs> I hate young people. I just do. I'm just <laughs> wow. Like, okay, yeah, because fine. it's it's you know you, you, they're, they're younger. Um, mm. You know they sort of you know it's that cliche about the way you view younger generations. Just like we didn't do that and. I'll say to my wife sometimes, like, oh, well, I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't look like that when I was a teenager. I wasn't sort of wearing that kind of that, that, those jeans and and that kind of shirt. And, and it's all nonsense. It's all in your own head, and it's all kind of tied up. But it, it's the same with football. We're just kicking out of something which I kind of, I feel like we're choosing to fixate on a little bit, maybe. One point I do want to pick up on that you made there is that um, 
I don't know if this is a straw man argument, but I haven't really seen anyone raise it in any seriousness, is, is this idea that if you use some of these phrases, that that we are over-intellectualising football, when, when it strikes me, it's not a particularly intellectual thing to use technical terms. It's a technical thing. We're not, we're not talking about philosophy here. We're just talking about really very specific nuts and bolts of football. And that can either be your thing or it isn't. But these phrases aren't these phrases aren't beyond people, surely. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think the, the example I always come back to, um, and this kind of characterizes what I do object to, is it's, it's not that it's not that people it, that some of the things are beyond people. It's just some of the things don't make sense to people. So I always mm. think of that. Do you remember the um, the Philip Lahm uh, screenshot with all the all the tri- all the triangles that were drawn around him as kind of some yeah. sort of demonstration of how you, how you occupied space, and then for what felt like six months, but was probably a couple of days on Twitter. Everyone got obsessed with it. So everyone was drawing it. And this was kind of, this was the new measure of midfield greatness until mm. someone came out and did exactly the same thing with Carlton Palmer. <laughs> and it's like, it's that, isn't it? It's this kind of insistence of, no, no, this is, I mean, I, I don't think you'd even call that over-intellectualizing anything. I just think that's just no. silly. And I think that's but, I mean, what people kick back against a little bit. But we could peacefully coexist, couldn't we, Charlie? The people who do enjoy those those mm. little diagrams and, and 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 what they entail can enjoy it, and then we can uh, I say we other people could laugh at them and also enjoy it, and then we could all just we could live in perfect harmony. I surely. think as well that there is a we have there's a competition between like this era of football and past eras of football, and so I think people and, and perhaps what Reed's getting at there is that you know don't be snobby about football in the 80s um, you know or, or the 70s or, or any other period because you know we were doing lots of those things so maybe it's slightly a yeah it's this intergenerational thing of, of trying of, of us trying to say that football's better now because it's more sophisticated which I don't think people are explicitly saying that but I guess um, you know we do put people like Guardiola on, on a pedestal and that sort of thing with good reason because I think he is very technically and tactically uh, advanced so yeah I think some people take the um, if we're praising it's almost like a zero-sum game I think people think if we're saying that now football is really sophisticated and really interesting well then that's saying that it wasn't previously when I don't yeah. think that's really what people are yeah. getting at no, I don't think there's too much reinventing of the wheel going on at all I don't think anybody is ever claiming that they have they have found a new way to play football or interpret football I'm, I'm just not convinced of that I would also I'd also um, put more stock in Peter Reid's analysis of pressing if he'd run a little bit quicker in 1986 <laughs> to catch Maradona that's, that's all I would say uh, well, after all that I don't think we're any closer to um, puncturing the the new modern technical language of football I don't think we're any closer to solving the insularity of of English football and uh, I don't think we still quite understand what it takes to be a professional footballer um, but I'm off to ask Adam LaFondra to join my father's side team anyway this has been enlightening in a weird little way thanks Seb great thanks. to have you it's been an absolute pleasure I've had fun and nice to see your face again Charlie thank you very much that was great cheers all we'll see you next week As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.